Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at belief? Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to episode 20 of the Lovable Podcast. Today is an essential discussion, I think, in our ongoing conversation about our loneliness problem. Today, we're going to start talking about two kinds of loneliness. The necessary loneliness that is a natural sort of experience in our lives and the unnecessary loneliness we create for ourselves and that we can also then eliminate. So this, I think, is the kind of conversation that can transform the way we see our lives. Um, but before we get into that conversation, a couple quick notes. First, I just I want to say thank you to everyone who's been inviting me uh, to share the good news of Lovable with them. I think of the people out in Newport Beach, you lovely people at Mariner and St. Andrews and Pacifica. Uh, I think of the Moms Together group, who I, I talked to three times at Chapel Street Church this month. Uh, I think of the, the leadership team at KSB Hospital. Um, this wonderful book club I've gotten to drop in on a couple times in California. Um, meeting with you all face to face is becoming one of the great unexpected sort of joys of this this writing journey of mine, and I'm so thankful for it. Um, and I wanted to tell you about one particularly, I think, joyful opportunity to meet with you face to face. It's uh, happening the weekend of April 20th in Waco, Texas. We're going to be hosted by Ashton and Bryn Gustafson, and um, they are going to be um, welcoming us into their home starting on Friday night, the 20th, um, for an opening dinner, and then um, a session about worthiness, and then we're gonna come back to their house on Saturday morning for breakfast, and then a session on uh, belonging. Then we're gonna have a, a lunch and a tour of Waco, and then we're gonna wrap up on Saturday afternoon with a session on purpose and uh, a closing dinner from seven to 10 o'clock on Saturday night at their house. So um, this is a chance for me to get to meet you and for us to dig way deep together into the ideas from, from Lovable. So we'd love to see you there. If you're interested, you can go to mkt.com backslash Ashton. That's mkt.com backslash Ashton um, to purchase your tickets. Those tickets will include, obviously, participation in the whole weekend, um, all, that, all that great food. Um, they're going to be providing us there in Waco and, um, and a copy of Lovable. So we'd love to see you there. Um, please feel free to check it out. I also want to remind you, of course, like I do every week, we're recording these on Facebook Live at 9 o'clock Central Time. Um, so go to my Facebook page, Dr. Kelly Flanagan, at that time, and you'll be able to, to join us, participate, listen in, whatever you want to do. Um, if you want a reminder of these conversations when they happen or a reminder of when my blog posts come out or a podcast episode comes out, I send out one email a week, a weekly newsletter on Wednesday mornings. You can get that by going to drkellyflanagan.com. That's D R. 
kellyflanagan.com and uh, subscribing in the right sidebar to my newsletter. Would love to uh, would love to have you join our little community. It's uh, it's a great place to be. And of course, if you if you want more um, than just a sample of Lovable, which you'll get when you sign up for my newsletter, um, then you can uh, go to uh, anywhere books are sold. You can go to lovablethebook.com to find out more about it. You can go to Amazon to read the reviews, and you can just go wherever you like to buy books to pick up a copy. So uh, feel free to do that. We'd uh, love to have you dive more deeply into Lovable. All right. I think this is a really important episode out of all of our episodes so far. This is the one you don't want to miss. Let's talk about loneliness and the loneliness we can't avoid versus the loneliness we can leave behind. Thanks for listening in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 19 of the year of listening, loving, and living. This week is entitled, From Limping Lonely to Loving Together. I think out of all of our conversations so far, this conversation alone can send our lives off in a new and beautiful direction because we're gonna be talking more specifically about this thing within us that is responsible for creating so much of our loneliness. And it's a thing within us, so it's something we can do something about. I'm excited to get into this conversation with you, but before we do that, Let's check in and see how uh, you're doing after week 18 of this year of listening, loving, and living. Last week was sort of a bold challenge to increase your awareness of your experience of loneliness throughout your life, not just currently, but throughout your life, and to move toward it rather than away uh, from it. Um, And if you were so inclined even to share some of that part of your story with someone you trust. So I'd love to hear about your experiences with that exercise, um, the resistance even that came up in the midst of that exercise, or anything else you're experiencing right now in the midst of this year. While you're contemplating what you want to share, um, I thought I'd share with you an experience I had with loneliness this week, sort of um, once removed. And I think it it has a direct bearing on our discussion today about different kinds of loneliness. Um, And so I wanna show you something. And for those of you who are just listening on the podcast, um, I'm holding up the most recent um, issue of Psychology Today. And uh, it's got a pink cover. And the big headline on the front page is The Loneliness Cure. And uh, I, I literally, that was the first thing I saw when I got to my office on Monday this week was that sitting, at, you know, had been dropped through the mail slot and was sitting on the, on the floor of our office. And uh, immediately, immediately my hackles were up. I'm like, that's the message. That's the message that can be so damaging to people that we can eliminate our loneliness completely, that there's a cure for it. And, and, and it's not one or the other, though, and that's what we want to get into this week. It's not that there's nothing that we can do about our loneliness, but the message that we can eliminate it, um, that we can cure it, that it's an, that it's an illness that needs to be fixed, um, sometimes can promote so much shame about it that we begin to react to that shame and start to do more things to create more loneliness for ourselves. And so that may not make sense right off the bat here, but it's something that I want to unpack as we go through today. And, you know, I I took a glance at the article. I haven't dug into it. There's a lot of good stuff in it about how we're becoming a more lonely and disconnected society. And we need to, you know, we need to be intentional about real face-to-face human connections. So good stuff there. Um, But some of the language even, um, they were describing lonely people versus non-lonely people. I have yet to meet a non-lonely person. Once you really get to know somebody, once you really talk to them, I have yet to meet a non-lonely person. So as soon as we start categorizing people into those categories, we start to create a sense of shame about, uh uh-oh, I'm not a non-lonely person, I'm aware of my loneliness, 
and now what do I do about that? Um, what's wrong with me that I'm lonely? Um, so we want, to, we want to normalize some experiences of our loneliness while addressing the parts of our loneliness that we can do something about and, and to be nuanced enough to do that. And that's what we're going to start doing today. So I'd love to hear your uh, reactions so far to what we've said about loneliness uh, or anything else that's coming up. Deb W. writes, the practice of last week was a good reminder for me. When a close family member rejected me and my family a couple of years ago, I struggled with attributing all of my loneliness to this one person when in fact it was there before the rejection. Uh, Deb, thanks for putting like a, a concrete example on that. Um, it, it does, it sort of encapsulates the thrust of last week's reading and practice, which was, yes, people can trigger loneliness in us. They can even do things to make us feel more lonely. Um, but we will respond more wisely to that experience if we remember that they're also stirring up a lot of old loneliness and that all of that is coming up in this moment. Um, and our, our reaction, if, if we can be aware of that, will be wiser, slower, more patient. Um, and, uh, and so to be aware of that is really important. Um, it reminds me of an old uh, Alanis Morissette song, um, and I can't quite remember the name of the song, but um, she, she sang, I, I wear their face on top of my face. Um, basically, I trigger things in you um, because you're, you're, not, you're not seeing just me. You're seeing all the people who have triggered those things before. And, uh, and she goes on to sing, I won't take it all on, right? So when someone tells us we are causing all of their loneliness too, we can say, I know I'm responsible for some of that, and I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna take ownership of that and take responsibility and change those ways I'm triggering your loneliness, but I can't take it all on. I know there was loneliness there before me, and if you're treating me as if I'm responsible for all of it, um, we're, we're, not, we're not going to heal, we're not gonna find belonging as, as quickly and as easily. So, um, Deb, thanks for that, that reminder. Alan um, writes that the Alanis Morissette's song title is Not All Me. Um, so you can go to any lyric website. He's listed AZ lyrics as having the lyrics to that song. They are fantastic and they, they get at um, this idea. And, um, and, and yeah, maybe in a future episode I'll go ahead and read those. Heather writes, I'll be honest, I haven't done last week's exercise. I'm saving that discussion for my session with my therapist next week. Not ready for, for specifically number three. I need to figure out why. It's been eight years. It's time to let it go. Uh, yeah, so um, Heather, thank you. And uh, I hope what you just said gives everybody who listened to the last episode permission to not have to act on, um, on last week's exercise, that there's a significant part of the value in last week's exercise is to begin to notice our resistance to doing it right? Because we say on the one hand, I want to become unlonely. I want to connect. I want to reach out. Um, and it's really easy to sort of look at everybody around us and see them as responsible for our loneliness. But once we begin to witness our own resistance to connecting and reaching out, we realize that we play a role in our loneliness as well. And, and so this week we want to start to get into taking responsibility for the part of the loneliness that we can, which is our role in it. Um, and so being aware of that resistance helps us to start to take responsibility for that. Julie writes, I love that analogy. As much as not one person is responsible for any of my feelings, I am not fully responsible for theirs either. Yeah, um, 
it, it goes both ways. Um, the taking the taking responsibility um, for my own reaction to others, uh, and taking responsibility for the parts of their reaction to me that I um, am triggering, but not not all of it. We can't we can't let that story be told in any situation. We all have history. We all have backstory. Fred writes, accepting that loneliness is a part of life and turn that feeling toward helping others and your belief in our Lord, it will pass. You know, you know that's, that's what, part of what we want to get at here today, Fred, is that accepting that loneliness is a part of life. That when loneliness happens, it doesn't mean necessarily that I'm doing something wrong, that I'm broken, that I'm somehow uniquely unworthy of belonging. It means I'm alive. Um, and that that feeling itself... Um, without it, I mean, we, we're wired for connection. We're better as people when working together and in community. And that you're, what you're getting at is that that lonely feeling can become the seed of togetherness, right? It says, I want to, I want to be in relationship with other people. I want to be in connection. Um, but then ironically, if we then hold other people responsible for removing that lonely feeling, right? Um, I felt lonely, so I wanted to be with you. Now please take that, that lonely feeling away. Then a new sort of division and disconnection happens between us because we start to blame people for not taking our loneliness away. So instead, we let our loneliness be the thing that drives us toward people, and we accept that it may still be with us even in the midst of connection with them. Um, that's sort of what we want to start to get at today. So I think let's keep discussing this essentially by, by getting into this week's reading. Um, and I think this week, before we get into that, it's essential to sort of take a passage from Lovable to give this week's reading context. I don't think this is probably the place in this unpublished companion book where it is most a companion book, where it is sort of most dependent upon having understood and read Lovable first. So I want to read a couple passages that will give us that context, um, and then we'll get into reading uh, this week's reading from the companion book. So I'm going to start reading from page 122 in the paperback edition of Lovable. Before I do that, though, just a quick context for this reading. Um, the context is um, the assumption underpinning Lovable is that we enter the world with a true self. Um, we begin to feel ashamed of that true self, begin to believe that it's not good enough, and, and in order then, not good enough for belonging, um, not worthy of belonging. And so then what we do is we begin to build a false self. Um, a self that we can sort of that contacts the world, that we can send out to meet the world, that is sort of in charge of earning us belonging um, because we think our true self isn't good enough for it. Uh, and so this reading starts to unpack what that false self is like for all of us as human beings. So again, true self protected by a false self, hidden away, and, and the false self then charged with going out and handling the world. Um, so this is my description of the false self or the ego, which is what the false self is. The ego isn't the psychological equivalent of an internal organ, like a heart or a brain or a pancreas. You can't cut it out like a gallbladder. And because it isn't made of flesh and blood, it can feel like a bit of an enigma, ephemeral, like a ghost. But the ego is exactly the opposite of a wispy specter. It's more like an impenetrable fortress. The ego is like a castle with three parts, walls, cannons, and thrones. Walls. When our tender hearts first experience rejection and shame, we build walls around our souls to keep people out and to keep ourselves safe. Walls that look like silence and avoidance, or pretending and people-pleasing, and public personas, or giving in and fitting in instead of standing up and standing out. Typically, our ego walls develop sometime in elementary school. 
right around the time we become aware other people can judge us and critique us and belittle us with a single word or even a simple look. Cannons. The walls of our ego are a good defense, but the best defense is a good offense. So we eventually add ego cannons to our ego walls. For some of us, ego cannons are violent, lots of fists and fury. But for most of us, ego cannons take on more socially acceptable guises, blame, condemnation, resentment, retaliation, and gossip, to name a few. My wife says men put, ego, put cannons on their ego walls, but women are more likely to use archers, precision strikes that cut, cut close to the bone. Our ego cannons, or arrows, usually develop sometime in late childhood or early, early adolescence. Thrones. When our ego cannons inevitably backfire, leaving us lonelier than ever, we try a different tactic. We build ego thrones on which to sit, and we fancy ourselves royalty. We construct our thrones out of power, possessions, and, pre and prestige. We find something to win or someone to dominate. This typically happens in early adulthood, though sometimes sooner, sometimes later, and sometimes never. All of this is completely normal, which is to say, completely human. And it is also amongst the most common causes of suffering in the world. The self-protective ego keeps us isolated and alone, deprived of the authentic belonging we all desperately want and need. It creates division and leads to violence of one kind or another. It is the fuel of arrogance. It ruins marriages and families and relationships of every kind. It keeps us from knowing who we are, who our people are, and what we're here to do. So I wanted to tear down my ego wall brick, brick by brick, blow up my cannons, and take a sledgehammer to my throne. I wanted it all gone without a trace. But every time I used a full frontal attack to dismantle my ego, for instance, every time I beat myself up for blowing up, or knocked myself down for acting like I was above everyone else, I only strengthened my ego further. Because ironically, I was trying to dismantle my ego with my ego. I had simply turned my cannons on myself, which meant my ego had found a way to feed on itself. Egos are sneaky that way. However, I did eventually find a way to deal with it. It turns out we don't find freedom from our ego by hating it or attacking it. We find freedom by loving it or befriending it. Therapists rely a great deal on metaphors. Metaphors make it easier to name and understand the complicated and abstract realities of our inner universe. So we therapists tend to throw them around and mix them up at will. We'll draw on whatever images work. And while the castle metaphor can help us to understand the ego, it may not be the best metaphor to help us befriend our ego. Instead, I became fond of a few other metaphors for the ego, chrysalis, tomb, and bodyguard. Chrysalis. Maybe our false self is not meant to be a fortress. Maybe it's meant to be like a thin membrane, protecting us during the process of becoming the beautiful creature we already are. It's a membrane that can't conceal our true self forever. It gives way once we experience the beauty we are underneath all the shame and protecting and pretending. When the urge to spread our wings and fly becomes absolutely insuppressible, the membrane bursts and then falls away. Tomb. Or maybe the ego is like a tomb. We bury our true self inside of it, and our true self seems to be dead and gone forever. But then three days later, or three years, or three decades, or three whatevers later, we discover the stone has been rolled away, and our true self has gotten up and is walking around and is more radiant than ever before. Maybe, like a tomb, the ego harbors our soul, preserving the soul for its resurrection, here, now, in this life. Loyal Bodyguard Or perhaps the ego is like a loyal bodyguard, the muscle we hire to protect us when the world gets dangerous. And maybe rather than beating up on our bodyguard for doing the job we trained him or her to do, we need to thank our protector for a job well done. These days, I call my ego Bruno. I forgive Bruno for all the liberties he's taken when I wasn't looking. I apologize for the orders I've given him when I was looking. And I tell Bruno he can stand down now. 
And you know what? He almost always does. The problem is he was made for protection. So when I stopped keeping an eye on him, he goes back to work again. So those are, um, that's a, a, a relatively lengthy um, introduction to this concept of the false self, which I call the ego, and ways to understand it. Um, and I, I present the ego castle first as a way of understanding it because it tends to be the most functional for people. You can ask yourself, how, how am I using my walls? How am I hiding? Um, how am I using my cannons or my, my archers? How am I being aggressive in order to stay safe and protected? Um, or how am I using my throne? How am I, how am I sort of residing in my arrogance to feel like I'm above other people rather than down on their level where I can connect with them? So um, that's, a, that's the most functional metaphor in my experience, but these other metaphors in a way help us to realize that um, disliking our ego, hating it, doesn't do us much good. Um, we built it for our protection and uh, we need to embrace um, the good things it's done for us to protect us and begin to decide that it's now keeping us lonely because our true self is hidden away in this huge castle and our true self is beginning to get ready to emerge and to make real contact with the world. So we want to get into that this, this in these next weeks is what's the loneliness that's natural that I misinterpreted and felt ashamed of and thus hid myself away and what's the loneliness that results from hiding away in my, in my false self, in my ego castle, and how can I begin to exit that castle? Brenda writes, I recalled feelings of loneliness as a new bride, moved away from my whole world at 19, and the first time I was alone without my children, alone in the hospital after birth of a second child on Christmas morning. I took the hours needed to process my feelings and then planned a way to reach out. Brenda, you had the wherewithal um, with those sort of very nat and I appreciate those examples. Those are very natural experiences of loneliness, right? Life, life takes us in new directions. Um, we move to communities we don't know. We move away from family that we know. We have moments where, you know, we're alone in the hospital room. Those are all natural forms of loneliness. And rather than feeling ashamed in those moments of loneliness, you decided to reach out. Shame says there's something wrong with me. I can't reach out. You know, but your sense of worthiness in those moments that I want to reach out. And that's what we want to do more and more. In those moments of loneliness, we want to reach out from our sense of worthiness rather than hiding and protecting behind our false self. And uh, Deb F. writes, yes, befriending it, the ego. When I stopped and looked at the ego I had built and took the time to review my life up to that point, I finally felt compassion for myself for a change, really for the first time. It made so much sense finally when I was the why I was the way I was, then I was able to make changes. I, to me, that is the ultimate moment of compassion for oneself. And until we have that moment of compassion, it's difficult to continue on the healing journey of embracing who we are, to say, oh, that's why I did all of those things. I've been thinking I was a bad person for the ways that I was aggressive or the ways that I was arrogant, and I was just trying to survive. And now that I know that, now that I don't have to do those things anymore, I can be aware of those habits I've developed and start to do something different. Um, to me, that moment of self-compassion that you've just identified, Deb, is essential. And if we don't have it, we find ourselves pretty stuck in this process of, of becoming who we were supposed to be. And Heather uh, tags along on that. What Deb F. said, exactly the same here. Yeah, I think we're going to discover as we talk about that, that that becomes, we're more and more aware that that's an almost a universal experience, that once I have some compassion for why I did what I did, um, I don't have to do it anymore. Um, but ironically, if we become ashamed of our ego, if we become ashamed of our false self, we need the ego more, right? Because we need more protection. Whereas compassion says, oh, I, 
I was a worthy little one within that ego trying to survive and now I don't need it so much anymore and I can begin to, to walk out of that ego castle. So such an important transition. Leslie writes, I have realized the walls that I have put up for a long time. I am hopeful for the comparison of a tomb and am encouraged that in time there can be a resurrection. Yeah, that experience of um, wait, this ego was sort of preserving me as I went through a life that in some ways was dangerous, in some ways was painful, in other ways was I imagined to be more dangerous and painful than it was. It preserved me and protected me. And now that I'm aware of my true self, it can be resurrected and get out and walk. And you'll remember the, the last four months of this year is called Identity Resurrection. Um, and uh, it's, about, it's about how we begin to live out of that true self even beyond our relationships. Well, I appreciate those, those sort of transitional thoughts as we get into this week's reading. So let's do that. It's called Week 19, From Limping Lonely to Walking Together. I didn't know the drinking glass was broken until I stepped on it. My wife had dropped it a day earlier. It had shattered and she had done a meticulous job of cleaning it up. But an impossibly small shard had wedged itself in the rug in front of the kitchen sink, sticking straight up. When my heel landed on it, the pain was exquisite. It took a while for me to realize the shard was still in there. It took a while for my wife to dig it out. And it took a while for the wound to heal. Every step felt like I was wounding it all over again. So I started limping and it helped. It protected the wound from further injury, and within a week my foot was healed, because our bodies have been built to heal themselves. Our hearts have been crafted that way too. We get glass in our foot and we get glass in our soul. Sometimes someone is to blame. We get attacked and beat up and mistreated and abused and neglected and stripped of our dignity in countless ways. Other times, no one is to blame. Sometimes loneliness is just loneliness, and shame is just shame, and pain is just part of being alive. Either way, the good news is, generally, wounds heal. With just a little attention and tender loving care, the body does what it's supposed to do. Skin closes up and bones reunite, even harder and stronger than before. And with just a bit of intention and guidance, the heart heals too. It lets go, releases, forgives, expands, reaches out, and loves again. Our wounds usually are temporary. Unfortunately, the way we protect our wounds oftentimes becomes permanent. I limped to protect my wounded foot, and it worked. But protecting it had become a habit, and unconsciously I continued to limp a little, even after my heel was healed. And before long, my uneven gait was causing my back to hurt in strange places. Then my hips started to ache. And a week after I had felt the last of the pain from my heel, I felt a searing pain in the opposite knee. It stopped me in my tracks. The habit of hobbling was wounding me worse. That's how heart wounds work, too. The limping we do to protect our wounded hearts, the pretending and defending, hiding and resisting, faking and fighting, can become, without us even realizing it, the gate with which we walk through this life. Then, the pain we experience has little to do with our original wound, and an awful lot to do with our methods of protecting it. When did you first feel the loneliness of shame? And when did you start protecting it with hiding? And how is your hiding making you even lonelier? When did you first get attacked? And when did you start protecting by retaliating? And how much more violence is it attracting? When were you made to feel small? And how did you start protecting by acting bigger than and better than everyone else? And how much smaller has your life become because of it? We're all limping a little, and we developed our habits of protection for good reasons. We needed them to create space for healing. And it's quite possible they were completely effective. Our original wounds may have healed a long time ago, but we've been limping ever since. And protecting for a lifetime can riddle that lifetime with unnecessary pain. 
After I felt the knee pain, I started doing something differently. I started paying attention. I noticed my protective limp, and I realized if I was going to feel better and heal completely, I would need to start walking normally again. The problem was, walking normally no longer came naturally. As soon as I quit paying attention, I slipped back into my limp. So for the next week, everywhere I went, I focused on walking. In other words, I focused on simply moving normally. Sometimes normal is the hardest thing to do. What if we all decided to do the hard thing? What if we paid attention to all the ways we hide and attack and elevate ourselves? And what if we made the conscious and determined choice to stop doing those things? What if instead we got back to normal and started stepping authentically into love and into life? It's possible we'd step down and feel a searing pain and realize our hearts still have some healing to do. If so, do it. Find a professional to walk with you while you heal. But it's also quite possible the pain you've been feeling all along was caused mostly by your protecting. It's quite possible your original wounds have already healed and your heart is already prepared to do again what it naturally does, to be open, courageous, hopeful, vulnerable, generous, and together. Yes, it's scary because you could get wounded again. In fact, you probably will. After all, there are shards of glass everywhere. But there is redemption even in this because this is how you find your place of belonging. The people who want to dig out your glass with you, even when it was their shard you stepped upon, especially when it was their shard, those are your people. May we stop protecting against each other and start digging with each other. I think I get a little emotional at the end of that reading. Um, I think specifically because it's obviously a sort of a metaphorical reference to my wife and that, um, you know, I've come a long way from thinking that belonging was a place where everybody did everything right and never hurt anybody um, to realizing that places of true belonging are a place where people are human and messy and make mistakes and simply own the mistakes and engage with each other and figure out how to heal from those mistakes. Um, and that to expect more than that from belonging is to expect a, a sort of a perfection that doesn't exist. Um, and really beautiful things start to happen when people are willing to sort of quit limping um, and, uh, and show up and, and be their true selves. So anyhow, um, I hope that that's what these months are, are leading us to is that, kind of, um, is that kind of belonging, one where we help each other dig the shards of glass out even if we were sort of responsible for it. Brenda writes, ego protection was huge during a first bout with major depression also. It went much better the second time. Wow. Um, Brenda, pro that's profound actually. So you're, you're telling us that there were at least two episodes of major depression in your life and that ego protection um, played a significant um, secondary role in the first episode, but not the second. And to me, that's, ex that's exactly it, right? Is... Um, I, I am depressed, and depression is enough suffering to handle on its own, right? But if that depression then leaves me convinced that there's something fundamentally wrong with me, I'm not worthy of belonging, now we need to protect, we isolate ourselves further, um, we intensify the depression with our, in, our unnecessary loneliness, um, but if we can, in the midst of that depression, reach out, try to connect, um, we begin to see that it goes better, as you said the second time. Reminds me of a um, one of the one of the pithier forms of very helpful advice given to me by a supervisor on my clinical internship. It was, it's okay to feel depressed, just don't do depressed. Um, it's okay to feel depressed, 
Um, but in the midst of that feeling, reach out, connect, ask for help. Um, don't hide behind a sense of protection because it'll get worse. Deb W. writes, love this so much, owning your part and helping dig out the shard, especially when it was your shard. Those are your people. So good. Um, yeah, let's, uh, um, the, the same, the same, you know, the same idea that puts the title on a, on a psychology today cover, the loneliness cure that says we can get rid of it all together is the same impulse, uh, that says our places of belonging should be places where nobody hurts us. Right. Um, it creates an idealized, um, expectation that nothing can live up to. If you read this article, the loneliness cure, and you think that, um, well, based upon this article, I ought to be able to cure my loneliness, eliminate it completely. Well, what happens in a week from now when you wake up lonely, right? Oh my gosh, I, there must be something wrong with me. Other people are reading that article and they're feeling not lonely. Um, in the same way, if you expect your places of belonging to, to be perfect and harmless, um, then you begin to ask yourself, what's wrong with this place? Instead, we ask, what can you, this, this is what happened. This is how I felt hurt as a result of that. I don't blame all of it on you because I know I have a history of hurt about this. Um, but what can we do to dig out that shard that, that you just put in there and, and to see if people go, I, I, I will dig as hard as you want me to. I will dig as hard as you want me to, to, to figure out how to get that out. I am sorry. And I take responsibility for that part. That's what we're, that's what we're hoping for from belonging, not perfection. Heather writes, I love this reading. I need to share with the hubby. <laughs> We've been having some growing pains of our own and we need to help each other and not hide from each other, which has been happening with increasing frequency. Um, and John adds, very brave, Heather. And again, thanks for that affirmation, John. Um, I, I, I do hope, I do hope that the reading can be something that the two of you share, Heather, and that is an encouragement to both of you that as you go through growing pains, um, taking extra intention you know, extra effort to even create regular spaces. I, I often say this about marital therapy when people say, why does it help? I think say, I think one of the main reasons it helps is that a couple every say Tuesday night at five o'clock says we are going to take an hour to be intentional about connecting around our marriage. Right. And they've got this therapist who's holding them accountable for that hour and we'll charge them if they don't show up. So they have to do it. Um, and so I, I do think when we go through periods like that in a marriage, for instance, Heather, just taking the time to sort of consider our marriage from this angle and be really intentional about creating spaces to do that can be so powerful. Anne writes, I love this reading too. In relationships, we do, we do tend to withdraw and expect perfection from mate instead of forgiving each other and moving past hurts. Yep. Um, <clears throat> and I, I, gosh, I just always feel, I always feel... The, the need, because I know there are people listening, I always feel the need to point out that this process of being vulnerable and saying, this hurt, can you, do, can you help me heal it? Can you do something different about it? Um, needs to be accompanied by a willingness to take ownership for that and to actually do something different and to see a, a person begin to, to behave differently going forward. Because you see in cycles of abuse and cycles of violence that there is this pattern, right? You hurt me. And then the abuser says, um, I'm sorry, that was wrong. I'll do something different. And there's a lull in that um, behavior. And then it resumes again. And the cycle is just repeated over and over again. So what we want to see from the people we belong to is a sincere, uh, sincere desire to change and the effort to make the changes so they don't keep putting the exact same shards of glass right back into our foot, right? Or into our soul. 
Deb F. writes, I'm still in the limping stage, laugh out loud, but now that I'm reconnecting to my tender inner child, how I protect myself, if I feel the need to, is to close the lid on my bucket and say to myself, I don't need to take this in, whereas before I would get kind of surly. Thank you for that. You're referring to, and I'll just expand upon that, Deb. You're referring to a place in Lovable, and you may have come across it elsewhere because I know educators are using this metaphor a lot these days. Um, they're telling kids in terms of handling um, uh, sort of difficulties in peer relationships, people who are mistreating them. They're saying, you know, think about it like this. You're like a bucket or you have a bucket and people are going to try to put good things in your bucket and people are going to try to put bad things in your bucket. And when people try to put bad things in your bucket, you just need to close the lid of your bucket, right? It's, it's coaching kids. And kids actually receive this really well. They get it. They still have the capacity for this kind of healthy emotional boundary, but it's coaching kids to have healthy emotional boundaries, right? Your perception of me is not necessarily my perception of me. Your emotions are not necessarily my emotions. And so as we cultivate that ability in ourselves as adults, when we, we discover that ability again to have healthy emotional boundaries, um, then we don't need to act with the ego in response. We don't need to hide, retaliate, um, elevate, we can simply say, I'm not taking it on. Um, that, that shard of glass you're trying to put into my heart through those words or those actions, I'm closing my heart and I don't need to do that. I, uh, I, was on the, um, I was on FaceTime last night with a book club out in California. I've been dropping in on them every time they wrap up a section of Lovable and just answering questions and dialoguing with them. And they had a great question, which is how, how do I know the difference between closing the lid on my emotional bucket, on my heart, on my soul in a healthy way versus just stuffing and denying. And I think, Deb, you're sort of getting at it there. There's an entirely different emotional experience. When we close the lid on our bucket, uh, when we sort of take responsibility for um, our own emotional life, there's actually a sense of spaciousness and freedom about that. A sense of like, wow, that feels good. I don't need, I don't, I'm not getting filled up by everybody else's opinions about me. So there's a sense of freedom, a sense of spaciousness, and a sense of joy, whereas the ego reaction, whether it's hunkering down behind walls or firing cannons is more one of surliness, anxiety, aggressiveness. They're qualitatively different emotional experience. And, and I can guarantee anybody listening, when you have that first moment of being able to close the lid on your bucket and knowing you don't have to hide, protect, or defend, you simply don't have to take it on, um, they're, they're, you'll know the difference. You'll, you'll know the feeling when it happens. John asks, is this like the stream where our thoughts run downstream? Our thoughts are not who we are. And John, you're referring back to an exercise that we did and a metaphor we used in the months of, of listening and embracing our worthiness, this idea that um, rather than getting carried away in our thoughts, we can sort of step out of the thought stream and watch them happening. And um, number one, have the experience that we don't need to get swept away in them. Um, and number two, begin to have this experience that I'm not my thoughts, I'm the one watching them, right? The seat of my consciousness, my soul, that observing my thoughts is, is really who I am. And that's exactly right. Um, when we talk about closing our lid and having an inner spaciousness, we're talking about being able to experience ourselves apart from the evaluations of others, good or bad, uh, apart from other people's emotional reactions to us, good or bad, and get to experience ourselves as a reality that is is beyond all that. And that is exactly what we're talking about. So thank you for drawing that connection because I think this is the this is the fruit of that that individual practice we had back in the months of listening is the ability 
to observe this happening between us and another and make a, an objective decision about what we're going to do about it. Brenda writes, I think the stream deals with the inner talk and the bucket is the outer talk. Does that make sense? Love it, Brenda. Yes, it makes total sense. Um, thank you for uh, thank you for that, that pithy way of clarifying it, right? We practice dealing with the inner talk and learning how to observe it rather than getting caught up in it. And now in these months where we're talking about relationships and loving and boundaries, we're talking about having emotional boundaries so that we don't get swept away in the stream of the outer talk as well. So well said. Yep. Okay, so let's take this uh, let's take this fantastic discussion and let's transition it into a practical idea for something that we can do with it this week. It's the week 19 practice. Here it is. If last week's exercise was extremely difficult, the good news is you're not alone. We're all limping a little. It was courageous to write a letter, perhaps even give a letter, about your loneliness to someone you love. It takes guts to take that kind of responsibility for your relationships. Probably you experienced intense inner resistance to doing so, or a vulnerability hangover afterward. This week we are going to begin working through your resistance to revealing who you are. Even though you have begun to embrace your worthiness and want to reveal it, there are some very real habits to reverse as you do so. Here we go. First, find two sheets of paper and a pencil. Right. Two sheets of paper, one pencil. On the first sheet, draw two lines down it, dividing the sheet into three columns. At the top of column one, write hide. At the top of column two, attack. At the top of column three, elevate. You're going to make a categorized list of the ways you limp. Your hide column, which again corresponds to our ego walls, your hide column might contain things like staying quiet, pleasing people, or adopting everyone else's interests. Your attack column, which again corresponds to the cannons or the, the arrows, your attack column might include things like anger, or gossip, or criticism. And your elevate column, which corresponds to the ego throne. And your elevate column might include things like judgment, or wearing designer clothing, or not associating with certain people. And by the way, and let me insert here, there's nothing wrong with wearing designer clothing. Um, in fact, well, let's just put it that way. There's nothing wrong with wearing designer clothing. The question is, what function is it serving, right? Um, is it serving the... Uh, the purpose of elevating us, or do we simply enjoy it? Um, and uh, and so anyways, I want to make that caveat there. And your elevate column might include things like judgment, or wearing designer clothing, or not associating with certain people. Write down whatever comes to mind, even if it stings a little to admit it. Next, on the second sheet of paper, make three columns once again. At the top of the first column, write limp. At the top of the second column, write heel. At the top of the third column, write not sure. Now list everyone that you can think of in your life and place them into three columns. These, again, not everybody, but people that you're in an ongoing relationship with. In the limp column, list the people you are most likely to limp around, those you feel most offensive around, those who feel sort of least safe. In the heel column, list those people with whom you'd feel most comfortable trying to walk normally. Remember, these may not be the people you typically feel most comfortable around, yet... These are the people you will feel most comfortable around when you become atypically vulnerable. In other words, these are the people you feel will be most willing to receive the revelation about who you truly are, and all your worthiness, and all your messiness. These are the people who can be grace to you. Then, of course, list the people you are unsure of in the last column. That is enough for one week. Indeed, that is more than enough, just like you. So that's the end of the exercise. And I can tell you, and I want to unpack just a little bit more that idea of 
the people that you, you feel and want to list in the heel column. One of my best friends started out this way. I didn't know him very well. Um, and we, I didn't know how much we had in common. I knew we liked some of the same music, but not a ton. Um, but I came to a point in my life where I, I really needed to share something with somebody. Um, and I had a sense that he is someone that I could do that with. And I asked him out for a dinner and uh, friendship ensued and we've become very good friends since then. So um, that, that heel column is a list of people, not necessarily the people you're closest to, um, but the people you've always had an instinct like, I really sense that if I show up here, they're, they're going to be able to embrace what I show up with. Um, those are the sorts of people that I'm talking about for that column. Heather writes, this is a good one. I think this will be fun while being hard. It may help with doing last week's exercise. Um, yeah, okay, good, Heather. Because I do think that this one, I do, my, my expectation after last week's exercise, it would be that there would be a little bit of like a, ugh, resistance at best, just <laughs> revulsion at worst. Whereas this week, I hope that we come out of this with a little bit clearer, like a little bit more of a sense of hope. Um, like, oh, I can see it. I can see where this is headed. To me, hope is in part suddenly seeing things from a slightly different angle, right? A lack of hope comes from every time I cycle through this, I just don't see any new way through this. And I think the reason this exercise starts to feel a little bit fun as you think about it, complicated and, and challenging, but sort of fun and maybe a hint of hope is that you realize this exercise might might open up some new paths for me that I had not seen before. Um, and that's what, that's what we want to do here. Um, the limping becomes such a habit. We want to sort of jostle that up a little bit and, uh, and, and suggest there are other ways. So I'm, I'm glad to hear that that's reaction. That's sort of, sort of what I would experience um, too in the midst of this and it's what I hope for. Thanks as always, everyone. Um, next week, we're gonna get even more specific about what it looks like to let down the drawbridge of our castle, which we didn't talk about today, but we'll be talking about next week. What does it look like to let down the drawbridge of our castle and come out of our ego castle from behind our walls? Um, it's gonna be week 19 of the year of listening, loving, and living, um, which is, or is it week 20? I'm losing track, folks. Anyways, next week is gonna be entitled, What to Do with Your Walls. Um, until then, remember you are so lovable, you don't need to limp so lonely anymore. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. <laughs>